On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he was traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Father, I ask that you would speak to us from your word this morning, and Lord, by the end of this message, to help us to go and do likewise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The story that I just read is probably not unfamiliar, even if you are a bit unfamiliar to church, you've no doubt heard the term Good Samaritan. It's not uh, some even are surprised that it comes from the Bible. It's so used in our society. But that's the story it comes from. I, I, in the course of the last few days, if you're looking at your bulletin, you'll notice I changed the title of the message, I changed the scripture, I changed just about the message completely, but that's okay, that's, sometimes that happens. This morning I want to talk from this scripture about the Good Samaritan message, Go and Do Likewise. The song the music ministry just shared is a great lead-in to this. When you love the least of these, that also comes right from Jesus' words. Boys become kings and girls become queens when we love the least of these. Talking about the Good Samaritan in this story, my question to you is, who are you in the story? Who are you? Are you the good Samaritan? Uh, The one who sees someone hurt and in pain, and when you do, you stop and you help? Are you the wounded man beside the road? Maybe you feel like you're beside the road, left, beaten, half dead, and this world has, has dealt you an unfair hand, and you look at your life and you say, I feel more like the one who needs help than the one who's able to help. Are you the priest, the Levite, the one who sees those around, recognizes that there is help, recognizes that they need help, but passes by on the other side of the road. Maybe you're the innkeeper. 
You're the one who teams up and partners with people who help others, and and you're willing to be part of the process, and, and you're helping others who are helping people. Who are you in the story? I think if we're honest, we'd all say we've probably all been each of those people at one time or another. We've all offered help at some point, and we feel good about those things. We've all been times when we needed help. Perhaps someone came alongside to help you. If we're honest, we've probably all seen someone in help, in need of help, and passed by on the other side. We have our reasons. No doubt we had our reasons. And they were good reasons in our minds. But we, at times, passed by on the other side. Times we've been the innkeeper. Someone else was helping people and they asked us to help them help others and we came alongside to do it. This morning, what I want us to take away from this story, we've all been, each of these people, at different times in our lives, but the priest and the Levite, Jesus has pointed the story, were not the remedy in this situation. They should have been. It's a priest and a religious leader. They should have been but they weren't the remedy to this hurt and wounded man's situation. The Samaritan, this person who was a different nationality that was not liked by the priests and the Levites, not not generally looked on in a positive way, this Samaritan, which would have literally been a half-breed. They were a a nationality of Jewish people who married outside the Jewish faith. And so because of that, they were discriminated against and there was prejudice against them. And this Samaritan, who no one would have expected to help, ended up being the remedy for this man's situation. And so this morning, how do we keep from being the priests and the Levites? And how do we become more like the Samaritan? How do we become more the remedy that Jesus wants us to be? How do we help more than we hurt? How do we heal more than we harm? And what can we get from this parable of Jesus to help us as the church of Jesus Christ become the remedy? From the parable of the Good Samaritan, we learn at least four things about being the remedy, and I want to give you them quickly this morning. Four things about being the remedy from the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is the first one. Being the remedy always has a cost. If you and I are going to be the remedy in any situation in this world that's hurting, in this world that, uh, that around us, being the remedy always has a personal cost for the Samaritan. He was on his way someplace. I mean, he's on a road between Jerusalem and Jericho. There's nothing in between, really. He's on this road to go someplace. He's got a destination that he's trying to get to. And he sees this person hurt on. So he stops. He gets off his donkey. In fact, some of what I'm talking about and some of the things I'll say today come from this book that kind of a play on words of that exact act and Reggie McNeil wrote a book, said, get off your donkey and help somebody. So this man gets off his donkey. He assesses the situation. He spends his own resources, oil and wine, to help the man, bandages him up, and then puts the man on his donkey so that he has to walk personal cost of now having to walk a journey you thought you were going to be able to ride. He gets to the inn and he says to the innkeeper to care for him, he gives him money and he says, whatever other cost you incur, I'll come back and I will pay for it for this stranger, this person I did not know before, but he, but he says that he'll do that. He incurs a personal cost. Being the remedy in this world, being the remedy in any situation always incurs a cost. See, sometimes we want to try, we like being the remedy. Everyone likes being the solution, not the problem. Everybody likes healing, not harming. But it costs to be the remedy, and sometimes we don't want to pay the cost. Love always has a cost. You and I cannot love someone without it costing us something. Part of the point that Jesus is bringing out in this parable is that we always want to be seen as loving. We just don't always want to pay the cost of love. 
The priest and the Levite, of course, wanted to be seen as loving, and many people probably did see them as good and loving and kind, and yet they were not willing to pay the cost of what it was to actually love. There's a cost. Sometimes that cost is paid before you even come across the situation. You pay a cost by creating margin in your life to be able to help in a situation. You say no to certain time obligations so that you'll have time to give to other people. You say no to certain luxuries that you might want to have that might be nice for you to have, but you say no to them so you have margin in your financial situation to be able to pay a cost to love. This this Samaritan somehow had margin. He had extra wine. He had extra oil. He had extra money. He He was able to take the time. He had margin in his life to be able to help and care, and he was willing and able to pay that personal cost. Helping is not usually convenient. You might have to miss that TV show. You might have to miss that gathering of family or friends. You might have to give up that latte. Helping is not always convenient. There's always a cost to loving. There's always a cost to being the remedy. The odd thing is that somehow, sometimes we think we can be the remedy. We can be loving. We can be helpful without ever incurring a cost. Being the remedy means, secondly, it not only means that there's a cost. Secondly, being the remedy means taking risks. Taking risks. The Samaritan may very well have been putting his life at risk. Did you ever think of that? He didn't know the situation. Man's beside the road, half dead. Maybe the robbers are still nearby. The same robbers that beat this man. Maybe they're just, just over the ridge. Maybe they're behind a rock. Maybe they're using this guy as bait to get someone else to stop. Maybe this guy's in on it. Maybe it's just a ploy to get someone to stop and this guy's in on it. You come up with all kinds of excuses. Why not to stop? Why not to take the time out? Because if you're going to be the remedy, it always, it always means taking a risk. But for this Samaritan, the cost of not helping someone was greater than the risk that it took to stop and help him. The cost of walking by on the other side and passing by someone in need was a greater cost than he was willing to bear than the risk of stopping and helping, even though he might be putting himself in danger. But how many times have you and I played that out in our mind? I can't stop and help. And what if it's a setup? And what if who hurt him is going to hurt me? What if who the person that took advantage of them takes advantage of me? Well, I can't help in this situation. We play these things out, but there's always going to be a risk. It's never going to be a 100% safe investment when you and I strike out to help somebody to be the remedy in a situation. You might get hurt. You might get taken advantage of. There's always going to be a risk. And if you and I wait for a time when there is no risk, we won't help anybody. And so helping always requires a risk. It always requires putting yourself out there. It never promises a return on investment. But being the remedy is what God calls us to. The third point is this. Being remedy has a cost. Being the remedy means taking risks. The third point is this. Being the remedy requires a willingness to see. A willingness to see. The priest and the Levite saw the man in need, but they couldn't see past their own agenda. They couldn't see past their own uh, thoughts, their own fears. The Samaritan was willing to see him in the situation and stop and help. He was able to see past the prejudice and the discrimination that was no doubt shown to him and his family. The Samaritans were not necessarily the ones who were in control. They were the minority who was discriminated against. But whatever pain or discrimination this man might have received in his life, he was willing to look past and to see past it and to say, here is a person in need and stop and help and be a part of the remedy, be a part of the solution. If we're ever going to be a part of the remedy, we've got to be willing to see. 
to see people in need and to see past our own prejudices, discriminations, judgments of perhaps how they got in that situation of need or what happened or what they did, but to be able to see past that. I mean, the Samaritan could have very easily said, well, he shouldn't have been walking on this road alone. Well, what is he doing? He should have been in a caravan. Serves him right. He's just, he's just experiencing the results and the consequences of his action. And if I don't let him experience those consequences, he'll never learn. All kinds of excuses he could have made. But he was able to see past. This, his, this guy is probably one of the ones that discriminated against me. Probably the ones that treated my family harshly, but he was able to see past it. Being the remedy means being willing to see Sometimes people are not comforted because we are too comfortable. Sometimes people go in this world not experiencing remedy, not experiencing healing, not experiencing love and blessing. Sometimes people aren't comforted because we're too comfortable where we are. We're too comfortable on our donkey. We're too comfortable going the road that we're on to make ourselves at all uncomfortable to help someone. Fourthly is this, being the remedy has a cost. It means taking risks. It means willingness to see. Fourthly is this, being the remedy, being the remedy is the road to eternal life. Being the remedy is the road to eternal life. And before you jump on me too hard about works righteousness or whether you can work your way to heaven, let me just remind you how the story started teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question Jesus is answering. That's the question Jesus is answering. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And the man responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you got it. Do that, and you'll live. Do that, and and you'll live. But Jesus went on to talk about what a neighbor is. And in doing that, Jesus wasn't in any way saying that you can work your way to heaven or you can give your way to heaven or your good works will get you to heaven. But what he's saying is the people that are on their way to heaven, this is how they act. The people that are on the road to eternal life, this is what their lives should look like. The people that, that, that if you are, 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 are loving the Lord and, and you are following him, your life ought to look like this, life of the Samaritan. Doing this might be the thing that actually saves your life. See, doing things for others and being the remedy and being the help the, the, the ironic thing about it is in the end, we might be the ones that are helped the most. Doing those things may help us more than anyone we ever try to help. Because sometimes when we don't do them, here's what we're doing. We're holding on to everything so tightly that we refuse to give it away to anybody. See, when we're not, the, 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 we're not willing to give, we're not willing to pay the cost, we're not willing to risk, we're not willing to do any of those things, sometimes it's because we have created the, this narrative in our head of reasons why we don't have to, why someone else should, why it's not up to us, why we can't, why we, and, and what we're really doing is holding on to the stuff in this world, whether it be material things, our position, our possessions, we're holding on to them so tightly that we won't give them up. But Jesus said, if you want to save your life, you got to lose it. And if you'll lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. And what he meant is, if you hang on to the stuff and the things in this world so tightly, and you never become that person who's the remedy loving, you're going to be surprised at the end of your life that you end up losing. You end up losing, not winning. 
and the one who opens their hands and gives away and says, Lord, it's yours. I trust you. I give it to you. I'm, I'm, giving, it, I'm giving it away. I'm, I'm trusting in you that at the end, when you think you have lost everything, Jesus says in the end, you're going to find you saved what was most important, your soul. It may be that being the remedy and showing love saves you more than anyone else. Because when we refuse to, our souls get sick. Our souls become in danger. So being the remedy is, the, is, is, is on the road to eternal life. See, Jesus changes the noun into a verb. It, it's subtle. You might not even notice it, but it's subtle. Because the man asks, who is my neighbor? Noun. Jesus answers, the one who is neighborly. Verb. Who, who, who's my neighbor? You know, is it the one that lives right next door to me? Is the, who, who's my neighbor? Where's the limits? Jesus says, anyone who's in need is your neighbor. And you should act neighborly towards them. Jesus changes the noun into a verb. It's not defining the type of person I'm supposed to help. It's just helping anyone who's in need. See, at the end of, 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 the end of this life, one author has put it this way, that God will ask you two questions. And don't get the answer wrong to either of them and don't mix up the answers. The two questions are these. One is that famous question that's been asked for years. If God was, if you died today and God stood before you and said, why should I let you into heaven? Why should I let you into my heaven? The only right answer in that situation is because of your son, Jesus Christ, and his blood and my trust in his sacrifice for me. That's the only right answer in that situation because there is nothing in ourselves that justifies us being in heaven. It's only the grace of God. But the second question is this. And throughout the Bible, time and time again, it says that God will ask this. What did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with what I gave you? Where you were good steward of the things I gave you. What did you do with the time? What did you do with the money? What did you do with all those sermons you heard? What did you do with the Bible passages you read and memorized? What did you do with the time that I gave you? What did you do with the talent I gave you? And the only right answer in that situation, the one I hope that we all give, is, Lord, I gave it away and used it to bring honor and glory to you. I used it. I gave it away. I used it to help tell others about your love. I used it to help let others know about your love. I used it to love people. But you can't use the second answer to the first question. The second answer cannot answer the first question. Many people think it does, but it doesn't. You can't say to the first question, you should let me into heaven because I gave all this stuff away and because I... That doesn't cut it. That doesn't answer the first question. The first question has to be answered in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice alone. But the answer to that second question is significant. What did you do with what I gave you? And so being the remedy is the road to eternal life. And if we are not, if we find ourselves ignoring or making excuses for why we won't help people... We find ourselves and our souls in a dangerous place. Let me close with these two points. In order to, that, that's about being the remedy to try and be like this Samaritan man that Jesus talks about. But how do you avoid becoming like religious people who walk on the other side of the road? How do we avoid, we don't like the priest and the Levite in this story. But we've all done it at some time or another. We've all walked on the other side of the road. We heard about a need. We saw a need. Maybe you looked around to see if anyone would notice if you noticed or not. And at one time or another, we didn't pull out our wallet. We didn't take the time. We didn't give what we had. We walked on the other side of the road. 
How do you avoid walking on the other side of the road? Just two points on this one. One is this. Be careful you do not substitute religious duty to the church for God's mission of love to the world. Be careful you do not substitute religious duty to the church for God's mission of love to the world. And we do this. The, 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 the phrase is this. He told them, go do this and you will live. These words at the beginning of verse 29, you almost pass right over them. But he wanted to justify himself. But he wanted to justify himself. Justify himself means he was not interested in what God wanted him to do. He simply wanted God to accept what he did. He was not interested in finding out really what God wanted him to do. He just wanted to know that God would accept what he did. He wanted to justify himself. He wanted to substitute his religious works for God's mission to the world. Reggie McNeil in the book, he has a couple quotes I want to share. One is this, we might be involved in a bunch of religious church activity like the priest and Levite, but that doesn't automatically connect us with God's agenda doesn't automatically connect us with God's agenda. The priest and the Levite were likely on their way. They're on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. So, so th- what a priest did is he made the sacrifices at the temple. What a priest did is he spoke to God on behalf of the people and spoke to the people on behalf of God. What a Levite did is he took care of the things in the temple. So, so today, you know, he took care of the church. The Levite, you know, he was setting up the chairs. He was making sure everything was set for Sunday. He would, he would make sure everything's in order. The Levite made sure that everything, they, they took care of the church. They took care of the ministry. So they're walking on this road. Now here's the thing. If they saw this man, now if he was dead and perhaps from a distance they couldn't tell, or if he might have died while they were helping them, here's the, what would happen. In the law, if they had touched a dead body, that would automatically disqualify them from ministering that day and for a period of time until they had cleansed themselves because they had come in contact with a dead body. So that was the risk that they were running, that if they had touched this man, and he died or was dead, they couldn't go and do the work for God in the church that they were going to do. And so everyone in the temple that day loses out because they would have touched this dead body. And so they could have very easily justified in their mind, I can't stop and help this man. If I become unclean, I can't do the work that I need to do in the temple. They're counting on me today. Who's going to do what I do today there? They're counting on me to be there. I can't stop and help someone. Reggie McNeil says, the church is not God's main focus, the world is. Where do you get that? For God so loved the church. No, that's not what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The church is not God's main focus, the world is. The church is God's instrument and vessel to love the world. And if we're not loving the world, if we're only loving the church, we are missing out. And then Reggie McNeil writes, so they opted out of helping a dying man in order to preserve their ability to perform their religious duties. They opted out of helping a dying man in order to preserve their ability to do their religious duties. People's needs have priority over religious observance. Jesus taught that all the time. Jesus taught that all the time. That's why he talked about the Sabbath. He said, is it right to heal on the Sabbath? Of course it is, because this person's needs take priority over my religious observance. Of course it's right to heal on the Sabbath. Of course it's right to feed them on the Sabbath. But it's easy to forget, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's easy even this morning. Even this morning, I'm confronted knowing this message is on my mind and my heart. And, and, and knowing that I'm going to be speaking this morning, I'm out there, you know, getting rid of the snow like you were this morning, right? Many of you. And I'm clearing the snow. And I'm blessed to have a, a snowblower that does most of the clearing for me. And I'm grateful for that. 
and I'm clearing my driveway, and I've, and I've got it done. And I think, all right, I got the driveway done. I got to get in. I got to take a shower. We got the family ready. We got to get to church because I got to do my religious duty. And I'm bringing my, about to bring the snowblower up, and I look over, and my neighbor hasn't gotten up yet. And um, I thought, well, they got a lot of snow there. They don't have, I know they don't have a snowblower. Um, and I also know that she's six months pregnant and, and he's got a bad back. And, and I thought, how can I go and t- share a message on the Good Samaritan, bring my snowblower in the garage and wave to them as I head to church? I'm like, is there a more exact illustration of, of that, right? And so you don't even know if I did the snow or not. You're just hoping. <laughs> You're just hoping I didn't walk on the other side of the road. Drive on the other side of the road. <laughs> so I got the snowblower and I went over and started doing their driveway. But I would hope I'd do that whether I was preaching on the Good Samaritan this morning or not. This, this, this thinking in our, in our minds and our hearts, right? It's, sometimes it's so far from us. What if this had been the Sunday they had decided to go to church? We'd been inviting them. You know, we've been talking to them. What if this is the Sunday they decided to go to church? Or what if, what if they thought, you know, they'd go to church if they could get their car out. But they don't have a snowboard, so they could get their car out. So maybe, and it would have just waved to them as our family's in the car and our driveway's clear and they're shoveling out and just walk on the other side and wave. And good luck with that. But it's one example, but we do it all the time, right? And we don't always make the right decision. I don't always make the right decision. I was feeling really convicted this morning. And also saw it as an opportunity for a decent sermon illustration. So I knew I had to do it. I didn't want it to be a negative illustration. So, But, but it's true, right? And one of the other things Reggie McNeil says is this. Religious charitable giving... giving reaches almost $100 billion a year in the United States of America. $100 billion a year. That's wonderful. We're giving people. Then he says, is there any reason any child in America should go to sleep hungry or not have adequate school supplies? He says, we are consuming that money on religious enterprises and activities that have very little to do with Jesus or his concerns for the poor the needy, the marginalized, the last, and the least of these. See, somewhere along the line, the church seems to have bought into a separatist mentality in our country. We don't buy into it when they try and say separation of church and state when it comes to things like uh, marriage and definition of marriage and abortion and legislation and things like that. We don't, we don't buy into the separation there. We say, no, we have a responsibility and, and we're citizens and, and so we don't buy into it there. But somewhere along the lines, we have bought into a separatist mentality that relegated the church to the religious corner of the room and somehow said that education and poverty and the poor was somehow the responsibility of the government and not the church. And so when there's a problem with the education system, well, if the government isn't doing something right, if there's a problem with people in poverty and poor, well, the government should be providing more programs instead of saying, where is the church in doing these things? Instead of looking at it and saying, our community has an, a problem with illiteracy, instead of saying, well, the schools should be better, where everyone in this room just about can read. So, so where's the church? See, we've accepted the separatist mentality that the government is supposed to take care of some of these things. When the truth is, if we look at Scripture, if the church was taking care of their things, the government would be out of a job. If the church would take care of the needs around them, if the church would rise up and look for the needs of our community, then the government wouldn't wouldn't even have an opportunity to do that. We get into the separatist mentality. 
We pay taxes and we take a standoff and we say, isn't it a shame about that without feeling the responsibility to do something about it? So the first way to keep from being one of these priests or Levites, these religious leaders, be careful you don't substitute your religious duty for the, to the church for God's mission to reach the world, for God's mission of love to reach the world. But the second one is this. Don't allow your focus on special grace to cause you to neglect common grace. Let me unpackage this for a second. Don't allow your focus on special grace to allow you to forget about your responsibility to common grace. And this is what I mean by that. I'm defining special grace by the specific revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior as He's come this time of year, as He's come in the incarnation, the birth, death, life, death, resurrection, coming again, Jesus Christ. When you put your faith in Him, you're saved. That is special revelation. You don't get that through creation. You don't get that just by thinking about it. It is a special revelation that is given. Someone tells you about it. God told us about it. That's the only reason we know about it. We tell other people about it. That's the only reason they know about it. It is special, specific revelation and grace. Common grace is the only way I can explain how someone who's not a Christian will be loving to other people. Common grace is the only way I can explain that someone who's an atheist and doesn't believe there's any moral authority in the universe would care about anyone other than themselves. Common grace is what each of us look around us and say, you know what, he's a fellow human being and I should help that person. That's common grace. That's common good. There's something, I I as a Christian believe that's the image of God. The image of God within us. Common grace. And so don't allow your focus on special grace to neglect common grace. We're to do both. We're to do both. We're to tell them about the special revelation of Jesus Christ, but we're also not to neglect the common grace. The priest and the Levite were to do the special work that they were doing, but they were not to neglect the common grace of just helping someone in need on the side of the road. Reggie McNeil writes this, if kids aren't graduating from our schools because they lack the ability to read, it's not just the failure of our educational system, it's also the failure of our church. So common grace is something that's our responsibility. When God called Abraham on his mission, he said, your job is to bless the world. That was part of the covenant. It's still our job. It's still our job. It's the unique responsibility and privilege of the church to be a blessing to the world, not just to the church, not just to the Christians, to be a blessing to the world. Because being the remedy costs something cost Jesus. Think about it. Jesus couldn't love or be the remedy without a cost. And we can't either. Jesus gave special revelation and special grace. He told us about the way to heaven. But he healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He showed grace to those who were caught in sin. He offered forgiveness. He showed love to the world not to those who are following him and trusting him, to those who are spitting on him and crucifying him. And so should we. If we're going to be the remedy, that's the type of people that we need to be. Last quote from Reggie McNeil. He said, hanging out with church people, he said, many people believe that hanging out with church people was the secret to becoming less and less like the world and more and more like Jesus. It seems to me we've had it backwards. Hanging out with church people is the way to become less and less like the world and more and more like Jesus. But Jesus was not really hanging out with church people much. Kind of hung out with people that didn't know him at all. I want to close out this service. Um, I'm debating. We're short on time. Do you guys want to do it next week? Do it now? You want to, I'm not asking you guys. 
All right, we'll do it now. We'll take a little time. All right, they're ready to go. I do want to be honored that, but I'm going to take a few more minutes. I know they're short on time a little bit. So I told you I want to let you have some people, um, meet some people who are living these principles out. Uh, and so last week you met uh, Joyce Holt, and she's, um, she's at the Ministry of Hagar's Sisters. This week I've asked um, Michael King and David Weir to come and talk for a few minutes. And Ashley? Yes, good. Michael and Ashley King and David Weir. I know Therese is out of town. Um, but I've asked them to come and talk a little bit about one of these issues, and that's orphans, and that's um, foster care, and that's children in our world and in our um, society that have often been forgotten. And uh, Mike and David and... Um, we'll need a couple more chairs, guys. Mike and David... Um, have been, um, they went our radical class. They are now in the follow me. We're going to get another chair. We'll get chairs for them. We'll get, they're in the follow me class uh, that they're leading now. But part of that comes out of their heart and their love um, for whatever God's up to, but especially what God's up to in helping uh, to deal with this situation of orphans and kids that, uh, that need homes. So, um, you want to sit here? You can sit. I'll stand. All right, you going to let me sit? Thanks. All right. Um, that's on. Mike, I think you guys are up first. So uh, I'm going to let you guys kind of take it for a little bit. I know you got a couple slides you want to show. Uh, but both the Weirs, David, you can sit. You don't have to stand. Both the Weirs and the Kings have adopted uh, children into their family. And uh, that's a big step. There's personal cost. There's risk. There's uh, all that stuff we were talking about this morning. So I want to give them a chance to talk about their experience. Big, big risk? Big risk. Okay. She said there's big risk. <laughs> so I want to give them a chance to talk about that journey, what they did as, a, as families to make those decisions, and also what we can be doing as a church. Kind of help the situation. Why don't you guys go? Well, I can just tell you a little bit. Um, we did adopt through the foster care system. Um, we recently have become, um, we re-enrolled to become foster fam- a foster family. And I just want to speak briefly about the need because I know that sometimes we think there's, you know, we get magazines for things overseas and we know that there's a need there, but there's a great need in our backyard. Um, I was asking the social worker as she sat and filled out some paperwork with us What's the need? And she said, Ashley, she said, every single day I'm putting little children into state homes. These are homes that they're just piling little babies into, kids into, because there's no foster care homes for them. In Massachusetts, there's no foster care homes. There's no parents to love on these children, so they're being put in state homes where um, people come in a few hours in and out to work there. No moms and dads to love on them. She said last week, we had a four-year-old little boy, came from an abusive situation, nowhere to put him, went to a state home. Um, And as we're filling out the paperwork, she said, there's another little girl who doesn't have a place for Christmas. And she said, I'm wanting to put him in this little girl into your home, but because we haven't done your fingerprints yet, it's going to take three more weeks and you'll miss the deadline. This little girl won't have a place for Christmas. And, And we have a church and we have homes and... I just want to say, um, they're looking for anybody. They're looking for single people. They're looking for married people. They're looking for young people and older people. They're looking for anyone to love on these children that can. And, um, you know, some people have said to me, but what if you get this little girl or what if you get a child and you only have them for a certain amount of time, which happens in foster care, and you know you're sending them back in an abusive situation, won't that be so hard on you and your family? Yeah, it will be. It'll be really tough. But as we know, everything that's tough is really worth doing, right? For Christ, we know that. We know that if he calls us to do something and it's really tough, that like birthing a baby, that there's a a joy in the end. And if we get a child for Christmas that we can share the saving news of Jesus Christ with, and we know that she's going home to a situation, we know that that child will be continued to be prayed over, um, then our hurt, what does that matter, right? (laughs) This little girl needs hope. So um, I just want to encourage you all, there is a great need, and we live in this tiny little house with the six of us, and our foster, um, our social worker said, can you fit a bed? Can you fit a bed? 
And I just, I, I just wanted to let you know, as a church, there is an enormous need. There are children every day in this holiday season that are be, being put into state homes where they don't, have, um, they don't have the love that we can offer them as a church. Um, I, think, I think one of the you know, concerning things, um, Pastor Rick, you, you touched on today about you know, religious people. Um, and I think about, you know, when Jesus talked about the sheep and the goats, and it was the goats that thought, you know, they were religious people as well, and they thought, you know, they were getting into the kingdom of heaven. And, um, you know, they, they did spiritual things, prophesying in, in Jesus' name. And, um, you know, David says in the Psalms that we need to search our hearts, you know, and, and that, you know, this call to be a Christian, is, it's a lifestyle of sacrifice, you know, um, and I think sometimes it's easy to go through the motions, come to church. I mean, sometimes Ashley and I talk a lot about, you know, we come to church and we go to Wednesday nights and I, all these things are important. Um, but, you know, God's love of the world, as you said this morning, you know, that, that our, our, our mission is out of these walls. Um, and I think about, um, you know, we come to church to be equipped, right? We, we come to church because... We need to be equipped to, to do the Lord's work through the week. And I wanted to share something just real short out of um, one of the books that we've been going over, Radical, together. And uh, the author, David Platt, he talks about this um, meeting they had one night to inspire people to uh, adopt and foster families. And um, so they set up the meeting. They're working with a local uh uh, social worker says when the meeting time came people from our faith family poured into our auditorium before the meeting began one of the uh, social workers pulled me aside and with tears in her eyes said what made you decide to do this and how did you get all these people to participate I smiled I didn't decide to do this I said God decided this was this was important for his people and he is the one who is compelling us to participate that night, more than 160 families signed up to help with foster care and adoption in our county. With the gospel as our foundation and motivation, our faith family said, we want to do all we can do to make sure that every child in our county has loving arms around him or her at night. We want to point every one of these children to the father of the fatherless and the defender of the weak who cares for them. You know, and, and there's a statistic that if every church in America were to adopt or foster one child, that we would eradicate the foster care system in America. And clearly the church is not doing its job. I think we're very fortunate to be a part of a church that is way above average in that regard, but we all can do more. And, you know, as, as a sermon you, you had the other week about outdoing each other in honor, you know, that we need to outdo each other in these, in these, in these works, in these, in these deeds and, I think sometimes we get afraid to say about deeds because, you know, we don't want that to become the way to salvation. But it's, it's so important because it is the fruit of, of our salvation. So, um, yeah. So you guys had my honor? You guys, did I shut myself off? I did. You guys had domestic adoption. Uh, the Weirs have done international adoption. David, would you talk a little bit about, about that? We're running 10 minutes over. They don't I mind. wanted the, those these, minutes you got. These people came out in a snowstorm, David. They came out in a snowstorm. They're not going anywhere quick. You're not going anywhere. It's okay. Sorry, They're not going anywhere go. quick. You just took a minute. I'm like a very conspicuous family here. I have adopted a sisterhood. Morgan and Madison as babies in China. And Jordan and Brooklyn as uh, two- and four-year-old. And uh, what I'd like to say is people are interested in statistics. If you see the slides, you wonder, well, how many orphans are there? Well, there are absolute orphans. There are 10 million absolute orphans, meaning they have no mom, no dad, no, they have nothing. But there are 100 million economic orphans, meaning no one's got anything to care for them. And uh, that's kind of the situation we were thinking of, the, the absolute orphans where there's no parent that you can go to to maybe support to help, uh, and then the economic orphans um, where 
my wife and I definitely got a calling from God to do this. And I was thinking of something um, just the other day. Maybe it's the voice of God or not, uh, but I think it is. Because when I thought about this more and more and more, I thought, are, am I adopting these children or are these children adopting me? So I, I, want to let, I want them to talk a little bit about their adoption stories just a little bit because I think you'd rather hear from them. <laughs> what was the question? The question is, how's this adoption thing going for you? <laughs> well, I guess adoption is really special, but <laughs> I don't know what to say right now. I had a lot in my mind, but you know how Moses... Um, helped all those people escape from Egypt. It's just like them adopting that whole, all the Israelites into their family and took care of them. And um, they've covered a lot, actually. Um, Well, I know that Jordan, she said stories that she things that are really scary and that no child should really go through that. Right, Jordan? I don't want to say it. <laughs> okay, then. Um, well, I know Jordan's very shy about doing stuff like this, but if you adopt one child and then you're like an example to everybody else, like at our old church, um, since we've been adopting, our pastors have adopted one child, and then um, they've encouraged all those other people to. Right, Daddy? Mm-hmm. Do you want to say something? No. Okay, that's all right. Did I, I, I did my time. I, just some numbers here. Let's say you wanted to adopt an orphan. Well, how much is it going to cost? I can give you numbers. It's twenty grand. The government gives you thirteen thousand five hundred dollars back in a tax credit, so it ends up costing you eight nine grand. How long does it take? It takes about a year. Uh, what countries can you adopt from? Several. If you do it in a private way, it's a little more difficult to do it that way. But there are only a few countries where it's uh, it's pretty slick. Ethiopia, it's pretty slick to go through the process, but. Uh, so, you want to say hi? Hi. There you go. I'll, I'll end this. Just, but this guy right here, this is where I'm going to go in four months. I tried to get Pastor Brian to do it, but he doesn't want to go to Jamaica. Crazy. Uh, but uh, this is my ESPN sports hero right here. He is an AG missionary in Jamaica, okay, and he has been running an orphanage for about 15 years called City of Refuge. I'm going to take the whole family. We're going to visit him. I've been talking to him on the phone, emailing him. His name is Steve Puffpath. And it looks to me like they've adopted him. I mean, doesn't that look like a very candid photo? And I'm going to check this out. I'm going to go there, see if this is real, and I'll report back to you. And the question is that I'm going to have for him, have all these children adopted him? And have, does he have this big family there in Jamaica? It's not going to be a tough trip, I don't think, but I, I think I'll enjoy myself. I'm sorry about that, but I will. So. Like I, Mr. Figueroa said, there are a lot of complications. I know with Jordan and Brooklyn, we were planning on getting Ava first, but... Our <laughs> Madison says, um, we almost did not get them because there are are Madison, I know (laughs) we were in Florida when this happened and we were really upset Um, our adoption agency lost their license right daddy and then did you Yeah, it was just, just you find out that God will work in your family when this happens. And I've got an adoption sister over there that could probably vouch for that. God will work. You'll see supernatural things happen during the process. And it will be an enriching activity. It won't be a burden. When people go and say, Dave, you did such a good work there. 
are, you know, you got to be kidding me. That's nothing at all. It's the other way around. I've been blessed by it. You want your, your life enriched. You want a better life. Do something like this. And everybody that's done that will f- know that that's the truth. It's not a burden. That's why I said two. <clears throat> two quick things. I didn't want you to be intimidated, too, by the cost of international adoption because domestic adoption can be at no, um, no cost. Um, so don't let cost get in the way of considering it. Um, I just want to end with James 127 where uh, James says, you know, true religion uh, is taking care of the orphan and the widow and um, keeping ourselves from being polluted by the world around us. So um, try and live by that verse. Amen. Can we thank the Weirs and the Kings? Thank you. Thank you, Dale. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and we do. We have a couple of, we have uh, Tom and Kelly Fallon are involved uh, a lot in the foster care, and uh, Jane and Joe Harris have fostered and adopted. And there's other families that have adopted as well in our congregation, uh, and we're grateful for that. But maybe God is speaking to you. I think uh, in the new year, uh, perhaps I think near the end of January, we're going to have uh, an adoption uh, information day. Just not even a day, just a meeting. If, if God's maybe speaking this to your heart, just come out to a meeting for a half hour, 45 minutes, see what. See what, get a little more information, what it's about. Maybe God's calling you to do something like that. So if our worship team will come back, music will close out in worship. Let me, um, let me leave you with this scripture from 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Is it there? I know. I, you were ready to go to the other PowerPoint, and I missed it on you. Here we go. First John chapter 3. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. And I'll leave you with one picture, John, if you'll show that picture of what you probably didn't know. It just looks like a bunch of garbage bags to you. Yeah. Um, Just a neat picture. I took this a few hours ago this morning over in our Family Life Center. Um, And that is uh, tomorrow morning. Those are the bags for the Wish Tree families in Burlington. Um, and each one of those bags contains gifts for families in Burlington. And, and th- here's the thing where we're being the innkeeper. The wish tree is not really our thing. The wish tree is Burlington's thing. Um, but they're helping people in need. There's like, I don't know, 60 families represented there that needed gifts for Christmas. Many of you have worked a wish tree in the mall. Many of you have helped out in many ways, staff and that. So these 50 or 60 bags, we're just the innkeeper. They need space. And we said, we've got a beautiful new building. We've got space come and put all your gifts in there. And tomorrow they're going to distribute them all out of that building to all these families in Burlington that are in need. And so one of those times you just, we're just the innkeeper in that way. Um, but it's great to be able to partner with someone and be a blessing like that. So as you stand, we're going to close in worship. Lord, Jesus is the ultimate remedy. We're grateful for that. But Lord, let us be the church that because of what Jesus has done for us and because of Jesus' love for the world and because of Jesus' love for the orphan, the widow, the, the one who doesn't have an advocate, the one who doesn't have a voice, the one who doesn't have the ability, the one who's left by the side of the road dying. God, don't let us be a church that walks by them on the other side. God, don't let us be the church that doesn't have the time to stop or the money to help. God, don't let us get so consumed with our religious duties that we miss just doing the common good and the common grace to the world around us. God, don't let us get so caught up in thinking that because we're we're doing our religious things that we're doing what you want us to do. 
God, help us to get that God-given burden that we talked about last night, love the world last week, and love the world around us so it results in God-exalting praise. So on that day when you say, what did you do with all that I gave you? Living in the United States of America in the 21st century, all the technology, all the money, all the, all the resources you have, what did you do with it? Lord, would our answer be that we gave it away, that we used it to love the hurting world that was around us. God, break us of our idols of materialism and comfort. God, break us of our idols that we worship of safety and fear. God, break us of our idols. God, you took a risk coming down loving us. You paid a cost. Forgive us for not being willing to pay a cost to love the people around us. God, we need you. God, make us into that kind of church. Make us into those kinds of people that we would be the remedy in this world that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.